guess you could tell from my, it was a very Old Testament-y prayer. Uh, you could tell what I've been spending a lot of time in the book of Leviticus. The book of Genesis, however, um, is of vital importance for us. Because really the book of Genesis sets the entire direction for the rest of human history. Not only does Genesis, of course, give us the the creation account, as well as the creation mandate, it also explains the the origin of sin and the resulting human condition. It explains the the promise of the gospel and, and redemption, the development of civilization. The book of Genesis tells us of God's calling of a people for his own possession. And Genesis also reveals to us much about God's character. So for example, he exists even from eternity past. In the beginning, God. He speaks and he acts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. He calls, he redeems, he covenants. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." Genesis reveals for us so much of of who God is, what He has done, what He promises to do, and so much of His character that is then further revealed throughout the rest of Scripture. But I want to zero in on one aspect of God's character for just a moment, and that is God as judge. God as judge. We see God acting as judge in various ways in the book of Genesis, uh, beginning right in the creation account, really all throughout that first chapter of Genesis, and I think it's best summarized in the very last verse of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. But when you think about God's judgment, that's, that's likely not the kind of judging that you think of. Maybe you have in mind something like Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. That's clearly a warning of judgment. In Genesis chapter 3, after they did do exactly that, Genesis chapter 3 is all about him carrying out that judgment, yet while also at the same time showing his great mercy toward the sinners. Genesis chapter 6 it gives us the, a very unique insight into actually into God's thinking as he's judging. Listen to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, in just, in just the few verses that I've already read there from the first few chapters of the first book of the Bible, we've seen glimpses of God's, God's mercy and His grace, even in the midst of His judgment. But the first time, uh, that I could find anyway, the first time that God is actually called the judge is in Genesis chapter 18. And it is Abraham who acknowledges God in this way. It's a familiar story. Um, even if you're not too familiar with the Bible, there are things that are going to ring familiar to you when I read this. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 22, says this. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So even as God is about to pour out His judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham understood something important about God's character. Not only is he the judge, history has revealed this to Abraham. He has known, he has heard the stories of Genesis. But he's also just. History has also shown him that. Not only is he the judge, but he is also just. So since the Bible tells us that God is the judge of all the earth, and that our God, whom we know is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, that He does what is just, then surely all of His judgments are just, right? Surely all of His laws are fair and equitable. They have to be. We could say that our God does not need a sentence review board like some of our worldly judges need. Turn to Leviticus chapter 20, if you're not already there. Leviticus chapter 20. Once again, I'm going to read um, the whole chapter. I'm going to read some difficult things. Things that may spur some interesting lunchtime conversation. But as we work through this chapter, I think that you're going to see why it is that so many people today come to wrong conclusions about God. 
In fact, many people read passages like Genesis chapter 20, and they come to vastly different conclusions about God's nature and His character than we do. The world disagrees with our claims about God and the fairness of His judgments. They would say that He is not just, that He is harsh and not holy. And words like gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, they don't even enter into the world's lexicon when describing God, especially when we read of the God of the Old Testament, as if He was different from the God of the New Testament or the God of everything. Let's read Leviticus chapter 20. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and I will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is a depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of the people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative, and they shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin, and they shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. 
You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart to you for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today, knowing that our greatest need is Christ. Show us Christ, Lord, even in this passage. I pray that you would guide us with your spirit, that we might understand and behold the wonderful works of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I've done in the past uh, several weeks, really, as we've worked through the book of Leviticus, it's been a very kind of different study. Um, I'm not really going to uh, exegete every word of this chapter, but we are going to cover the main, the main idea. And when it comes to main ideas, I actually think there are, there are three critical themes here in Leviticus chapter 20, and I want you to see them this morning. First, I want you to see the, the consequences that are described in this chapter. I made them all C's, for those of you who like to be able to remember things like the alliteration. Consequences, the commands given in this chapter, and then the, the consecration to God that he emphasized, that God emphasizes here in chapter 20. So commands, or consequences, commands, and consecration. Now, before we go any further, I want you to understand that the entire context of this chapter is a context of worship. In fact, the law here specifically references two details that tie all of this, even the immorality in the middle of the chapter, ties all of this to the pagan ritual uh, practices of the Canaanites. Those two details are references to the god Molech and also necromancy, which is a few times in the chapter. Sometimes necromancy is called black magic. It's an effort to communicate with the dead. That's what it is an effort to communicate with the dead. Now, God's reasoning, just as we skim through this chapter, the reason for God uh, condemning child sacrifice is actually really easy to understand, right? We understand that. Um, but why is necromancy, why is going to a seance, say, why is that such a big deal to God? Is it because... Is it because it's impossible to communicate with the dead, and so therefore going to a seance or having any kind of things like that is just a waste of time? Is that why God condemns it so much? Or is there something more going on here? 
I would submit to you, I think it's because there is a lot more going on here, including the reality of the demonic. But before we get into that, we're going to come back to that. Before we get into that, let's hold fast to what the Bible actually does say here and begin with the consequences that the law lays out. So the consequences. Let me read again just verses 1 to 5. We're really going to pay attention to this section. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Jerusalem who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among the people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean, to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do it all, close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. Now, you, you may remember a couple of chapters ago, um, we read a, a similar, although it was a lot shorter, warning about sacrificing your children to this god, Molech. So in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21, it said this, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your god. I am the Lord. Now, that isn't actually, that, that's not the only repeated command in this chapter. In fact, in one way or another, every command in this chapter has already been given, either in chapter 18 or 19. This is more specific. There are more details, we could say. But really, the gist of it is all laid out in chapters 18 and 19. And this repetition is, is actually characteristic of the law of God. He will repeat himself. It's actually characteristic of lots of places in the Bible where God repeats himself. And when God repeats himself, we probably should pay special attention, right? Why does he do this? Why the repetition? Well, verses 1 to 5 here, it reveals the same pattern that we actually see all through the rest of this chapter. See, the purpose of this chapter is not just simply to restate the law, but really to reveal the consequences, the consequences for the one who violates God's law. So, for example, in this opening section about, about giving our children over to, to this God, Molech, there's actually three distinct consequences. I don't know if you picked them up when we've read this. First, the Lord says in both verse 3 and then also in verse 5 that he will set his face against both the sinner and those who tolerate or look the other way regarding the sin. Second, the Lord promises, again in verse 3 and in verse 5, that he will cut off both the sinner and those who tolerate the sin. He will set his face against them and he will cut them off. He will cut them off from among their people. And then finally, verse 2 says that if the people of the land respond rightly, they will put this kind of sinner to death. He will die by stoning specifically. Now, if you just kind of scan over the rest of the chapter, if you were uh, 
If you were there, if you were listening when we were reading through this, you probably heard a lot of those repeated phrases. And you're going to see that these same consequences are listed for these other repeated violations. So being cut off is also mentioned in verse 6, and then again in verses 17 and 18. The command to put the lawbreaker to death is actually commanded in verses 2, verse 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15, 16, and verse 27. Shall surely be put to death. 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 Nine times throughout this chapter. Shall surely be put to death. Now, how they are killed is not always indicated. Did you notice that? But we saw in verse 2 that stoning with stones is listed there, again in verse 27. But listen to verse 14. This one should make us stop short. Verse 14, the consequence should. If a man takes a woman and her mother, it is also, it is a depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. Burned with fire. The scriptures don't tell us why, why burning. Why burning versus stoning. Why is this particular sin in verse 14, why is it called a depravity? Or some versions might just say wickedness, but not the others. In fact, we can agree, I think, that all of this is depravity. All of this is wickedness. But in the Bible, in the Bible there are certain, there are certain sexual sins that are always associated with pagan idolatry and the penalty God issues is for the offenders to be burned with fire. Genesis 38 is Judah and Tamar. He mentions it there. Additionally, we also know, and we've continued to see over and over and over again. See if you can catch this connection. We know this. The wages of sin is death, right? Paul tells us that in the book of Romans. We have seen this over and over and over in our study of Leviticus. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then Revelation chapter 20 explains a little more. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But there's more. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. This means that you are either a part of God's holy people and therefore live like God's holy people in holiness, pursuing holiness, being transformed to Christ-likeness, or you belong to the unholy and the demonic. That's what it means. Now, one of the obvious questions that comes up when thinking about these, these consequences is, what does it mean to be cut off, though? God says over and over that they will be cut off. What does that mean? Well, some, some think it means banishment. 
being sent away. Some think it means a, a loss of their, of their chosen status and, and therefore a loss of access to the altar of God and, and therefore no possibility of an atonement. Others think it means a, a removal from God's covenant people. Still others believe that when the, when the sin is not found out and, and punished by the community, to be cut off actually means a premature death by the hand of God Himself. I actually think it's the possibility of all of those things. And that this warning, this warning here throughout these, this chapter, throughout these verses, this warning is, is meant to sober the sinners. It's meant to warn us, to turn us away from giving in the t- to the temptation of wanting to be just like the world all around us. For the Israelites of wanting to be just like the nations around them. For us to be just like the world. I also think a good verse to describe being cut off is actually a verse that describes our lives um, what our lives were like before we were saved. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Imagine having those things Separation from Christ, alienation from the commonwealth of Israel, the people of God, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Imagine having those things cut off from your life and your future. But let's not lose the point here of Leviticus 20. And and let's ask this question. Why is the list of capital crimes... Crimes deserving the death penalty. Why is this list in Israel far broader than what we find in our society today? Why are these punishments so severe? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, partly at least answers this question. Moses says this, God is saying to Moses, Moses writes, So you shall purge uh, the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and never again commit such evil among you. So consider this. How long does it take for sin to spread? How long did it take for Cain to murder Abel? when sin first entered into the world? How long did it take for Ham, who had been on the ark with his father Noah, how long did it take for Ham, the father of Canaan, to bring immorality right back into creation? How long did it take for the people of Israel to complain and then demand an idol? How long does immorality take to spread through a society. We're seeing these things played out in real time, are we not? Even in our own land. And I would be willing to bet that one of the reasons for that, one of the reasons why immorality continues to spread throughout our society is the negligence of pastors, churches, to preach on sin and hell. To preach about God's judgment. 
We would much rather talk about living the good life now, even our best life. Well, the reason our laws um, today need not be so severe and why we are not what is known as theonomists is because we have the gospel. There is there's no real way to preach the good news of Jesus Christ without first preaching the bad news. Listen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's condemned already. We have the law and the gospel, and that is important. Well, this idea of the severity of punishment, it should move us from thinking about the consequences to what the commands really are here in Leviticus chapter 20. So let's look at the commands now. I need to be clear about just what exactly verse 2 specifically is prohibiting. So so look at this again. What did it mean to give a child to Molech? Verse 2, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Well, one of the places, if you do a, a simple kind of word search for the name Molech um, in the Bible, uh, one of the places that you will find is 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10. Now, in the timeline of the Old Testament, the timeline of the nation of Israel, this is way at the end. This is hundreds of years after these events in Leviticus. So the nation has been established. They're in the promised land. They have a, a series of kings. They've actually divided. There's been a civil war. They've divided into two nations, two separate peoples, two separate kingdoms. And King Josiah of Judah, he was working to turn the people under his charge. He wanted to turn them back to God, back to God's law. And he led many reforms during his day, including this. Pay very attention, very careful attention to this. It's 2 Kings 23, verse 10. It says this, And he, King Josiah, defiled Topet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Now, there's some place names in there, and sometimes we kind of breeze over those without uh, paying attention to them. But here's what we need to remember when we think about what I, where we're going here. This is the king, okay? So the king has legal authority. Therefore, you need to be careful with what I'm about to say. He has legal authority. And when it says there that he defiled Topet, that means that he tore down and destroyed the place where they burned children, the place where they sacrificed children. That sounds like an awful place. But today, in our nation, that would be a sterile clinical setting. It would be a Planned Parenthood. But the king, 
with the legal authority of the law behind him, went in and destroyed it. How did they get there? How did they get there that it even existed? By disregarding the law of God. They disregard. He warned them right here, don't do this. Anybody who does do it is going to be put to death. And if you, if you turn around and look the other way when you see it happening, you're in for it too, he says. Everybody is guilty. The nation is guilty of this. They disregarded the law of God. Moses uh, will summarize much of what is found here in Leviticus chapter 20 when he, when he says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is a summary of all of it. In fact, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want to read a paragraph. It's verses 9 to 14. Deuteronomy 18, just a couple, pa- a couple of books over. And Moses uh, writes this. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, they listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do any of this. Now, when we think of false gods, right? When we think of false gods, we think of, we picture, likely, uh, someone bowing down to a statue or something, right? Something with no life in it. We think of a, a, a piece of wood or a rock. And there's an element of truth to all of that. In fact, we can see that in other places of Scripture. But all of this is much worse than just, than just praying to a log or praying to a rock. Because while Molech is not a god, and so in that sense he is a false god, All of these false religions and rituals are under the control of the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. This is what makes witchcraft, black magic, sorcery, necromancy, all of these things that are also associated with all of these areas of immorality, that's what makes all of this so dangerous. Because even even Christians have stopped believing, at least practically speaking, that the demonic exists. We've stopped believing that Satan is real. That we have an adversary who is creeping about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We've forgotten that. And people are conjuring them. They're sacrificing their children to the God of this age. They're worshiping him with their bodies. Even if they don't know his name. I couldn't help but think of the line, only some of you will get this. And Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name. What's puzzling you is the nature of my game. 
Rolling Stones sang that 50 years ago. That's happening. Do you see why under, under the Old Testament law, people who did such things faced the death penalty? Is the death penalty too severe? Is it too harsh for someone who burns their child with fire as an offering to Satan or one of his many aliases, whether it's Molech or, or Baal or whoever, body autonomy or whatever it is? Even unbelievers call for the death penalty in such overt cases. What about necromancy, trying to communicate with the dead? Does that merit the death penalty? What about that whole list of sexual sins there in verses 10 to 21? There are things in that list that make us really uncomfortable to read in church, especially in church. Yet others might make us think, do these things even belong in the same category? How about verse 9? For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. The death penalty? We'd all be dead. Some of us would be more dead than others. (laughs) Do do you see where this is going? Let me ask you this. Do do you see where our nation is going? Those are two different questions. Let's answer the second one first. As I was writing my sermon, I saw a headline. This is what the headline said. Consider the context of all of this, especially verse 9. Consider the context of this. And this was a headline I saw. Why are so many young people cutting off their parents? And then the subhead said this. Over a quarter of Americans are estranged from a family member. It continues. What's leading millennials and Gen Zers to their breaking points? This is a question we have about so many things, but a quarter, I had to read it twice because I thought it said, in my mind, I just put of a million. I thought it meant a quarter of a million of, a quarter of Americans are estranged from, they're cut off from a family, from their family members, some family member. I don't recommend doing this. I highly don't recommend doing this, but you can search the headlines for a whole bunch of sins listed in this chapter, and you will see them happening with increasing regularity. And in many cases, they are being celebrated by our society. We just had a month-long celebration of some of this. We are becoming Canaanites. America is embracing paganism and all that is associated with it. Now, it just dawned on me, 4th of July, this isn't my America, God bless America sermon. <laughs> this is just the next passage. <laughs> but regardless of what any human government says or does with the death penalty, God's penalty for all sin is death. Do you know why? Because each and every sin is a destruction of 
a defiling of, a distortion of, a dismissing of, a dismantling of God's good design. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 makes that same point. God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. It begins with creation and with mankind's rejection of the creator. Then it moves on to idolatry. Then it moves to various sexual sins, homosexuality. And then to this final paragraph, Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 32. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, so what do we do? Do we shake our fist at our Facebook feed? Do we complain to our friends, what is happening with this country? Do we turn a blind eye? Or do we pick up our sword and fight? Of course here I'm talking, we just read Matthew 26. I'm talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Do we put on the whole armor of God? One of my favorite books is the, is the little book called Safe and Sound by David Pallison. We went through it with the elders and deacons a couple of years ago. In it, he writes this paragraph. He says, It is important that we rightly envision the panoplyon of God, the word panoplyon is usually translated as whole armor, the whole armor of God. But armor creates the wrong mental picture. Panoplyon does not mean protective armor. It means the complete weaponry to go into combat. It means you have the tools to do the job. You are fully outfitted and equipped for a calling. Do you know what this means? This means that the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It means that will work. We don't have to sit and complain or, or sign position, uh, petitions or, or just simply share posts. We can go and make disciples because Jesus also said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So consider this. Our mission is to go and make disciples. That's our commission. We've been told to do, been commanded to do that. Consider also the truth that Christ is continuing to build his church and the gates of hell are unable to withstand the attacks of a fully weaponized church, weaponized with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Consider that the gospel, of which we are not ashamed, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God. How shall we then live? We've seen the consequences and the commands. Let's finish now with the consecration. Consecration. There's several, there's a whole bunch of verses in this chapter that we haven't touched on. Um, 
particularly verses 7 and 8, as well as really that last section, verses 22 to 26. And they really reveal this theme of consecration, of being set apart for holiness. Let's just look at verses 7 and 8 because it, it really summarizes the whole idea. So Leviticus 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. What is, the, what is the right response to the revelation of both God's good design and of sin's destructive ends? It's, it's separation. It's separation from the destruction that comes from the world, the flesh, the devil, and a separation to our Creator. Don't forget that that Peter quoted from Leviticus in 1 Peter chapter 1. He quoted from these chapters here when he said, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is for Christians too. But did you notice that, that God both in verse 7 and 8 there, God both, uh, he both calls and he provides for holiness? The same verb really begins and ends the passage. Consecrate yourselves. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Those are synonyms. It's important because holiness is not just God's will. Consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart because God is setting you apart. Not only is it God's will, it's actually God's work. We could say it like this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. There's one other phrase that I want you to see that's repeated throughout this chapter. You can see it really in the, in the last line of the last verse. Their blood shall be upon them. The pronouns change. His blood shall be upon him. Her blood shall be upon her. Their blood shall be upon them. It's throughout the chapter. One of the many threads in this chapter that leads us directly to Jesus Christ. See, one writer put it like this. The severity of sin's ultimate consequences are reflected in the severity of sin's ultimate cure. Our blood was upon him. In man's rebellion... We destroy, we defile, we distort, we dismiss, we dismantle the Creator's good design, very good design. And yet it was the Creator Himself who took the most severe sentence of all. It was Jesus who was put to death. It was Jesus who was cut off. You see it? And that repeated phrase, his blood shall be upon him, it simply means, that, that means his own guilt is his own. That's bad news for sinners. But the good news is, the good news is that the gospel points us to the cross and God declares your blood is on him. Your guilt is now his. And his blood has been shed for you. Because he died for us, because he rose again and defeated death, we are sanctified. We are set apart in him forever. And out of that, we could say, out of that glorious reality, 
And only from that reality can we find the power to live as a set-apart people. It is only in Christ that we can live as a holy people. It's only in Christ. In Jesus, we find the true rest of the true promised land flowing not just with milk and honey, as it mentions here, but with living water, the bread of life. Is the, is the righteous judge, is the righteous judge and his call to holiness, is that harsh? Is the mission of the church uncomfortable? May it never be. Maybe, may we be a people who continue to stand out, to stand firm, and to fight with the complete weaponry with which he has equipped us. The complete weaponry, the full armor of God, that we would use it not as a defense, but in the offense, that we would go and make disciples. Pray with me. Father, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have revealed to us everything that we need in the Bible. May we be a people who fight. Fight for the truth of your word. Fight with love. Fight as Christ fought. As he had victory over sin and death. May we look to him. Not fight in our own strength, but in the strength that comes only through the Spirit of God through a knowledge of the word of God, the promises of God, the truths of God. May we be a people who stand firm and fight. May we be a people who go and make disciples, who go into our community, who go to the people around us, the people that we come into contact with, our own children, Lord, our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers, to stand firm, to have the courage to stand firm to proclaim the truth that Christ is King. Father, as we come to the table, as we consider the blood of Christ, remind us today as we eat and drink that our blood is no longer upon us. But for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Father, may we eat and drink and so proclaim the death of Christ until he returns. Father, we long for his return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.